And as we have just read the parallel account in Mark's gospel, just a reminder to us, this text, like the text we considered past this past Lord's Day a week ago, is one of the accounts that's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Each record Matthew 19, verses 16 and following, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and following, and there our text today in Luke 18, verses 18 and following. So the same chronological context is found in each of these. This comes after the the receiving and the blessing of the children that we considered last week. But there's also a thematic link, and we considered that somewhat last week as well. This that there is a linking here of themes, and that theme being entry into the kingdom of God. We saw in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax tax gatherer or the tax collector some few weeks ago. There, the theme of humility, as opposed to pride and self-righteousness, the one who was least expected to have experienced or to have received anything from God, this tax gatherer, in fact, receives justification, receives God's favor because he demonstrates a spirit of humility, whereas the the Pharisee, the religious elite, the one whom all of Jesus' day would have expected that this is the man who will have access to God. This is the man who will receive the favor of God. And Jesus says of him, he's the other. You know, the publican, this tax collector, he was justified rather than, rather than the Pharisees. So there we saw humility as opposed to pride and self-righteousness. And last week we considered the blessing of the children as the parents were bringing their children to Jesus to, to be touched. And they're the model of kingdom citizens. And Jesus commands and says, it is such as this, as these here, make up the kingdom of God. And so the virtue that we considered that we see in children is the virtue of humility. Nothing coming to boast in. No self-confidence. No great successes. Simply coming and willing to receive. So we come to our text today regarding the rich young ruler who has a question as he comes regarding eternal life. And it's tied... Down in verse 24, with entering into the kingdom of God. And so this this theme of entering into the kingdom of God, but also the idea, the importance of humility, is revealed to us in each of these accounts. One, a parable. Two, encounters with Christ. Two, actual real-life experiences. So in a lot of our text today, as we look at this rich, young ruler... How should honest questions, honest inquiry, those who come regarding spiritual matters be handled? You know, if the rich young ruler had come to many of us with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, our, our conclusion would be, ah, there's a, there's a heart that's been prepared. Here's one who is searching. Here's one that's ready. And I must be careful that I don't mislead him and turn him away. Let's draw the net. Let's bring him in. As it seems that he is so close. But in fact, we see that he's not as close as it first appears. So begin reading with me here again in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 18, beginning verse 18. Not quite all the details we read in Mark, but of course very very close. I wrote a question him saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, 
how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. First thing I want to ask you to do is to follow with me in this account the progression or the the exchanging, the changing of of terminology throughout this text. You notice, first of all, in verse 18, this one who is described as a ruler, he is a manager of a local synagogue who comes with this question. His question is, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And that expression there of inherit eternal life. And then we see as the story progresses down in verse verses 24 and 25, how the terminology that Jesus uses becomes how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. So you we've moved from this inheritance of eternal life to entering the kingdom, entering the kingdom of God in verse 24, as well as in verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So I think it's safe to assume, and I think it's right that we assume that these terms, they're speaking of the same thing. That this man who comes with this question about inheriting eternal life, Jesus equates it eventually here to entering into the kingdom of God. But then also notice down in verse 26, when the disciples, you know, they're hearing what's going on here. Look at the question they ask in verse 26. Those who heard it, then who can what? Be saved. You know, they don't ask the question, who can then inherit eternal life? They don't ask the question, who can then enter the kingdom of God? They ask the question, who can be saved? And so, again, I think we can see that there's a progression here, or a changing of terminology, but they all speak of the same things here. This idea of inheriting eternal life that the rich young ruler speaks of, and then Jesus warns about the difficulty of entering into the kingdom of God. And then the disciples' question about being saved. The terminology is, seems to be all speaking about the same thing there. Inheriting eternal life, entering the kingdom, being saved. Each each expression essentially referring to the same thing. But whatever terminology we choose to use, and we use all this, don't we? We do. We might not use the terminology of inheriting eternal life very often. We speak of eternal life, and it's certainly not used to speak of the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom. And, you know, everybody speaks about being saved. But whatever terminology we want to use here, it's declared as an impossibility by human effort in verse 27. That's what Jesus says. These things are impossible with, God, with people or with men or among men or mankind, but they are possible with God. So again, whatever expressions you want to fall back on and use, Jesus makes this declaration, it's an impossibility by human effort. However, He doesn't leave it there, does He? He doesn't leave it as, this is the realm of, this is the, realm of the impossibility. Don't even try to go there. It's not something to think about, this is Im- impossible, so we just abandon as unaccomplished, undone, undoable, and pursue something else. Because Jesus does give that special addendum in the last part of 27. These things are impossible with men. Then he adds, they're possible with God. So we're speaking of what is impossible in the realm of men by men's ability, by men's strength, men's resources, man's effort, but also something that is quite possible to God. That with a divine intervention, impossibilities do become possible. That with divine intervention, that 
with all the impossibilities that are there of inheriting eternal life or entering the kingdom or being saved, all these things or this thing becomes possible if there is a divine intervention. And I want to think about such a divine intervention as triumphs of grace. Triumphs of grace, and that's the title of my message, triumphs of grace in the human heart. When the grace of God comes and performs that which is deemed impossible. The grace of God does that which only God can do in the heart of an individual. When grace triumphs, when grace wins, when grace, the grace of God, comes forth victorious in the human heart. So in thinking about that, we're going to think about that God's grace does triumph. And the triumphs that we can witness and the triumphs that we rejoice in and knowing that the impossible can take place. And if we're a child of God, the impossible has in fact taken place in your heart. The triumph of grace there. So first of all, the first triumph of grace that we see that is impossible with men, yet possible with God, is the application of God's law. How is the law of God applied to your heart? We have here in this encounter, this manager, this ruler of a local synagogue, he comes approaching Jesus and he comes with this question. And the question is somewhat vague, even as we look at it. We know he's looking, his question is wanting to know how to inherit eternal life. You know, is it a quest for for assurance? You know, maybe he's struggling in his own life. I've just got doubts whether or not I've truly have experienced what is necessary so that when I die, I'm going to inherit eternal life. So perhaps he's coming to Jesus for assurance. Perhaps he's coming for counsel. He's, he's heard Jesus. He's seen Jesus. And he realizes that he speaks with such authority and such power. So he comes, I want to come to Jesus if there's anyone who knows what it is to have inherited eternal life. It's got to be Jesus. So I'm coming to Him and I'm asking. Looking for Jesus' insights. And what does Jesus do? He comes, this man, He comes, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? First He deals with His title, but then He goes on there, which we're going, we'll come back to that in a moment, but He comes there in verse 20. He comes to the commandments. He comes to God's moral Law And actually, in, in this encounter, he deals with what's known as the second table of the law. Those relationships, those commands that God gives us, gives to us, and how we are to relate on a, on a horizontal level with the people in, with which we live, brothers and sisters in the world in which we live. And so he goes to that table of the law, those things which, to be quite frank, are pretty visible. I mean, you can go to the law and you can read the law and Jesus just recites them here. Don't commit adultery. You know whether or not you've done that, don't you? Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You know, these things on this horizontal plane, you can see them pretty clearly. And so Jesus goes to this second table of law and he says, here it is. You know the commandments. In fact, Matthew's account, he records it as, You wish to enter eternal life? Keep the commandments. That's what he says. Keep the commandments. Well, to which the rich young ruler replies, in Matthew's account, which ones? So Jesus gives him a few. Names a few here. And then the rich young ruler responds, Verse 20, 21. He said, all these things I have kept from my youth. You know, Matthew's account even adds that he asks, what am I still lacking? What you're telling me here and this com- these commands, this, this law of God, I've been doing this. 
And he was like a man who could very honestly say, I've not been involved in an adulterous relationship. I've never murdered anyone. I've not stolen. I've not been guilty of bearing false witness against anyone. I can honestly say on the surface that I've been doing this. Yet there's something in this, in this gentleman that indicates there's something amiss. Because that's what he says. What am I still lacking? There must be something more. So what do we get from this? We see this rich young ruler with one of the many, in fact, in this encounter, one of the many missed opportunities that he had. The missed opportunities that he had when he he comes to Jesus and he comes to Jesus with expectation that Jesus, if anyone, this man can be of some genuine help to me. And so he comes and he asks and he hears, but he runs right past Jesus' words regarding God's law. In other words, he hears what Jesus says, but he's not really hearing what's being communicated, does he? He's not getting it. No, Jesus knows this man. Jesus knows that this man could, with integrity of heart, say, I'm not guilty in the outward expression of these sins. And yet Jesus applies this, doesn't He? He chooses to apply the law. Why is that? Because the moral law of God summarizes God's instruction. It summarizes God's design, God's will for men to live by. And so this man, he hears what Jesus says about the law of God and he misses. He misses the opportunity that is set before him. The opportunity to stop and to evaluate and to consider the role or the work of God's law. What is the law of God intended to do? All he hears is, do these things. His response is, I've done these things. And he's missing the fact that he's come to Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, God himself, and received the answer to his question. Rather than hearing, do not commit adultery and do not murder and do not steal and not bear false witness and honor your father and mother and thinking, I've I do all these things or don't do the things that I'm not supposed to do. I obey these rather than thinking that to hear these things, to hear, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother and you say and stop and think, how have I not obeyed these? Wherein have I failed? Have I missed something here? Jesus is throwing to me these the commandments of God, which I tend to think this is not applicable. But maybe I need to think there's something here for me. And so he misses the work here of God's law, that the law of God was never given to us as a standard to achieve and to perform so that we might gain acceptance with God. That's not why we have the law of God. It's not able to do that. Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 8, that which the law cannot do. And what the law cannot do is bring us into a right relationship with God. So it's not given to us to say, here it is, do this, and you live. Achieve to this standard. Make this your goal and gain eternal life. That's not the purpose of the law. It can't do it. It's not given to us as a standard of achievement or performance. Rather, the law of God is given to us to expose us. And the law of God reveals to us just how fallen we truly are. How vile, how sinful we really are. So as we go to the law of God, we look at it and we say, Oh my, how I'm so guilty of so much of this. That's the work of the law. And so this man misses the opportunity to rightly apply the word of God and the law of God to his heart. To allow the word of God, the law of God to bring about guilt, the sense of guilt 
and conviction for his sin, and even a sense of despair. That's where the law of God will lead us. Just the law by itself. To the verge of despair. I am undone. What can I possibly do? Paul talks about in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 verse 11. No one. No one is justified. No one is declared righteous by the law. Turn with me very quickly to Galatians chapter 3. Look at a few verses here. Galatians chapter 3 verse 11, which I just... Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. In other words, no one will ever stand before God and be declared righteous because they have kept the law of God. It can't happen. And then look down in verse, same chapter, Galatians chapter 3, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. If a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. In other words, if there was a law that could be given and we could obey it and by doing so we would receive life, it would have been so. Righteousness would indeed have been based upon obedience to that law. But the problem is, there is no such law. So what is the purpose of the law? Verse 24, Paul tells us. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified, not by the law, not by obedience to the law, justified by faith, justified, declared righteous, brought to terms of peace with God by faith in Christ. Then Romans chapter 3, verse 28 Romans chapter 3, verse 28. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Listen, it's not part faith and part your works. It is faith and faith here, not the good work that brings in the favor of God. It is faith that is the emptying of oneself, that is recognizing that one has nothing to bring and embracing someone apart from himself, outside of himself. We're not proclaiming here the virtue of faith. Talk about saving faith that finds its refuge in Christ completely. All is in Christ. And so Jesus, when He teaches, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus teaches regarding the law, what does He do there? He explains the right application of the law. And there He addresses the commands regarding adultery and the command regarding murder. There it is, right in the Sermon on the Mount. And it addresses attitudes that... This thing of adultery is more than just the physical act, but there's the attitude and the heart's attitude of lust. And that the sin of murder is more than just the act of taking a human life, but he deals with the attitude of hatred. And what's Jesus doing? Is he taking the law of God to a new level? No. He's just simply saying, this is what the law of God meant from the day one. That it was not merely a letter of the law that we're looking for, but it is the Spirit. What all is conveyed in these commandments here? And so that in reality, we can look at most any of the commandments of God and say, to the Spirit of this law, I am guilty. I'm guilty. And so this man, this rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, missing this opportunity of rightly applying God's law to his heart. And then we come to realize that it is a triumph of God's grace that such an application be made. 
It is the grace of God that enables someone to say, the law of God gives me nothing but condemnation apart from Christ. What a triumph of God's grace that God's law can be rightly applied to my heart. That God's law can do that work of conviction, can do that work of exposing my sin, of exposing my vileness. So let me ask you, how does God's law affect you? When you read the law of God, when you have the law of God read, do you look at the law of God and say, I've not done any of these things, I'm innocent. Or do you experience that triumph of grace where you sense the weight of the demands of God's law and you see and you know your own fear to disobey and you can look at the commandments of God and say, guilty, guilty, guilty I am. I can't justify myself before God by reading His law. It only brings condemnation. See, what a triumph of grace. This is what grace does in the hearts of men. When grace wins, there's the application, the right application of God's law made to the heart. And it's, it's ugly. <laughs> it's condemning. It's vile. But that's the right understanding of the law of God. To understand, I am not going to bring myself into a right relationship with God by anything I do. It's to abandon any hope of merit, any hope of righteousness in and of myself. I have none. So we see... Actually, by contrast, in our text today, the absence of this triumph. There is no such triumph of grace today in this man's heart. For the law of God is rightly applied. A second triumph of grace that we rejoice in, and again, which by its absence here, that is the appreciation for heavenly treasure. Appreciation for heavenly treasure. The dialogue continues there in verse verse 22. And after the, the rich young ruler has replied that I've kept all these things from my youth, the law of God has in touch. In verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. And Mark tells us, Mark's account, which we read earlier, Mark 10, 21, says that he felt a love for him. Jesus spoke to this man in love. He wasn't trying to make something overly difficult. He wasn't coming with gimmicks nor tricks. Jesus here speaking from a heart of love for a man. And he says to him, well, one thing you lack. Sell all that you possess. Distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Now, you know how the modern-day evangelistic approach would be on this, don't you? The modern-day evangelistic approach would be, you come to Christ, you get yourself saved, and then all this other stuff, it'll be taken care of. <laughs> and Jesus didn't do that. Because Jesus realized that there was a heart issue. And he was in no place near coming to Christ. He wasn't ready to enter the kingdom. He wasn't at the door, almost there, just open the door and he steps through. That's not where this man is. If we, if we understand that Jesus is speaking in a heart of love for this man, he's not making this task more difficult than it ought to be. I mean, don't you somewhat, sometimes look at this door and you think, man, if he'd have said that to me, I don't know if I'd have come here. <laughs> I don't have a lot to get rid of, so that's not quite the same problem, but it's going to say something to you. So Jesus comes and he speaks from a heart of compassion, addressing the needs of this man's heart. And this instruction of sell all and then distribute 
your, your money to the poor. But he gives the motivation there. He just doesn't hang him out high and dry. He says there, you know, do this. And this is what you get. This is the, what you're exchanging for. You shall have treasure in heaven. There's, your, there's the exchange. So the rich young ruler basically has two options. Earthly treasure or heavenly treasure. And the scripture tells us here in verse 23. that when he heard these things. He became very sad. For he was extremely rich. Did Jesus say these things to this man just because he had so much wealth? No. He said these things to these men, not because of the wealth this man possessed, because of the, the wealth that possessed this man. Nothing wrong with being wealthy. There are wealthy people in the kingdom of God. But when that wealth becomes your security, that becomes your hope, that becomes your confidence, that becomes your God. And it was everything to this man. So Jesus went right to it. Are you willing to give up what means the most to you for heavenly treasures? Well, this man was a man, he could understand earthly wealth, couldn't he? He benefited from it, no doubt, every day. Just a lot of conveniences, a lot of comforts, a lot of hardship you avoid if you've got money. So this man could think about earthly wealth with some some degree of intelligence. I know what it's like to have it. I know, I can imagine at least to some degree, what it would be like to be without it. All he had to do was look around in the world around him. But he had no frame of reference for heavenly treasures. So he's got it down clear. This is what these worldly treasures are like. I know I've got it. It's great. I'm I'm glad I've got it. Heavenly treasures. I'm not sure how to weigh that. I'm not sure how to evaluate, how how to appraise that. No frame of reference. No, it's like if you take, you computer people, it's like if you take a a disc that's formatted for a Mac computer and you stick it in your PC and the little thing comes up and says, this disc is not formatted. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is formatted. The problem is it's not formatted for a PC. It's formatted for a Macintosh. And unless you have the right kind of program, you can't use a Macintosh disc in a IBM-compatible PC. But there's nothing wrong with the formatting. Nothing wrong with the information. There have been occasions that Neil has emailed to me a, a, an item, a bulletin insert or a cover or something like that, and I've gone to my computer to, to open it up on my computer and I look at it and it's got strange symbols and squares and rectangles and all kinds. I call I say, Neil, I can't open it. And so he sends it in another format. And then I open it. So you've got this rich young ruler. You know, he's, he's, he's hearing what Jesus says about these earthly treasures and he's just not, his brain's not formatted to grasp that. You don't value heavenly treasures apart from the triumph of grace in your heart. And you could present that to this man. Here are the heavenly treasures and all of its splendor, all of its wonder, and he can't get it because his brain's not wired that way. It's not human nature. It's not formatted to, to get that. He can't, he can't compare the earthly treasures of great wealth and comfort and security that comes with that, with God's unmerited grace and pardon. You know, I understand, perhaps he might say, I understand that God's pardon and God's mercy be important, you know, in eternity. But how practical is that in my everyday life right now? God's pardon and God's mercy 
His grace is not going to put food on my table tomorrow. So, you can't fathom what is in in fact a great inequality in the exchange to be made. This is not an equal swap. Earthly treasures, heavenly treasures. This is not even. But what's wrong with him? In his mind, it's not even because these earthly treasures are of so much greater value and practical value than these heavenly treasures. It sounds nice, but he can't live on pie in the sky. And it is unequal because of the surpassing value of the heavenly treasures. We know that if we're in Christ. But he can't get it. So in his mind, this isn't equal because what I've got is far greater than anything I'm going to get. And what Jesus is saying is, what you will gain is far greater than anything that you will give, what you will surrender. But he can't do it. He doesn't do it. Because again, apart from the triumph of grace, apart from the triumph of grace in the human heart, no one sees it. You included. Me included. Apart from a triumph of grace in my heart, there is no appreciation for heavenly treasures because I like the things that I can see. I like a little bit of comfort and security. And after all, this thing about eternity, it's not quite in the bag, is it? I mean, when is that going to happen? And how much do we really know about Alexander? And I know really a lot about living right here in this world to now. And you got to have money. Right? See, we're all like that. Apart from that triumph of grace in your heart, you would have absolutely no appreciation for heavenly treasures. And what a wonderful triumph it is. I wonder if there are any here who would still refuse such an exchange. See, that's the same for you. And yours may not be wealth. Maybe it's just a self-confidence. You trust your ability to do things. Whatever the case may be, that which you hold dear, that which brings you some measure of security, Jesus says, I want you to come and I want you to drop it. I want you to abandon all hope in this thing and come gain heavenly treasures. Would you make such an exchange? Are you still wrestling? Well, I know the importance of this, of spiritual things. I know the importance of being right with God. I know the importance of pardon and and forgiveness, and I understand all that, but is it going to cost me all this? Yes. It's going to cost you confidence and love for everything. It's all transferred over for a love and a confidence and a hope in and appreciation for eternal treasures. So if there was any here today that you think, well, I don't know that I would make that exchange. Here's what I would impress upon you. Pray for God's mercy and pray for the triumph of His grace in your heart. Oh God, may Your grace triumph here that I would value pardon from God, God's favor, and even value God Himself, which is what He gives us, above earthly treasures. And yes, it is difficult. Verse 24 and 25, Jesus looked and He said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And again, it may not be money in your pocket or in the bank. What is it that that holds your confidence and your hope? Your sense of security? He said, it's hard for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for those who are confident of having lived a good moral life to enter into the kingdom of God. It's hard. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And what's he saying there? 
I think he's saying what he says. It's a, it's a parabolic, a proverbial illustration here. The eye of a needle. A literal eye of a literal needle. Sewing. <laughs> I don't agree with the idea of a small gate where the camel goes through and everything else. I don't think that's the case here. That can be done. That's not what Jesus is saying. This is impossible. And there are parallels even in India about, about an elephant doing something similar to that. And they hear that and they think, that's not going to happen. And that explains the disciples' response. <laughs> well, who can be saved? We have, all have some measure of wealth. And truly, surely, people who are experiencing the blessings of God and be, with wealth and goods of this world, surely they will be saved. Jesus says it's, it's hard. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle and for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Yes, it is. But if we were a child of God today, you can rejoice. We can praise God that He has done that work of grace. There has been that triumph of grace in our hearts for where there is an appreciation for heavenly treasures. That's God's gift to us. It's not that we wised up. That we finally got it. We just thought about it long enough and we got it. So what happened? There was a triumph of grace in our hearts when grace prevailed and where the heavenly treasures became precious to us. And though we were walking in blindness, pursuing comfort and security and everything else other than God Himself, the grace of God triumphed in our hearts. Didn't it? Conquered by God's grace Seeing the treasures of spiritual life. That's what God's grace does. And the third triumph of grace, which we rejoice in, which we witness, and which, again, is absent in this account of this rich young ruler. And that is the affirmation of Jesus' lordship. The affirmation of Jesus' lordship. This rich young ruler has come to the right person. He has come and he has knelt before him. He has shown respect in his actions and his words. Good teacher. But Jesus immediately addresses even this man's addressing of him. He addresses when he says, good teacher. And it's a question that goes unanswered, isn't it? But the question that Jesus asks this man, why do you call me good? There's no one good except me. Where's the answer to that question? Not recorded. There was no answer. And so we have here another missed opportunity for this man to consider the one to whom he has come, the one to whom he speaks. And very simply, this Jesus asking, Do you regard me as good in the absolute sense? Good as God Himself. Is good. Do you regard me as God? And so here, Jesus, God, gives some instructions. Folks, this is this is the God of the universe, the God of heaven, speaking with the authority of God. Speaking with compassion. And he gives a command. Go sell all that you have. Give to the poor. Follow me. There it is. It's a command. This isn't just good advice. Try this. Come back in three days. We'll say it worked. This is command. And the rich young ruler's response to the Lord of glory is quite frankly, no thank you. That's not a good idea. That's not what I want to do. That's not what I am going to do. A rejection of the command of God Himself the one who speaks in perfect wisdom to the needs of this man's heart. No. 
a rejection of Christ's rule, a rejection of Christ's lordship. It is a violation, again, of the first commandment of God. You're to have no other gods before or besides me. To the requirement for one to make such an affirmation of Jesus' lordship. How is it possible? The requirement for one to do so is a triumph of grace in the hearts of men. Only grace, only God's grace triumphing in your heart will permit you, will bring you to the point of saying, Jesus is Lord. Only grace. We've referenced the, where Paul speaks to the saints there in Corinth, Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In other words, no one can say Jesus is Lord as an expression of their heart. This is a genuine confession of my heart apart from the Spirit of God. You can say words, but it won't be genuine. No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus' words to Peter at the great confession of faith that Peter makes. Who, does the word, who do you say that I am? You're the Christ, Son of the living God. What did Jesus say? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter. You didn't sit down and get it. You didn't sit down at the feet of one wise man and have information passed into your head. God has the Father, my Father in heaven, has revealed to you who I am. Blessed are you. You are blessed. You are graced. To make such a confession, Peter. Jesus himself says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. John 6.44 No one can come. Unless the Father draws him. Such is the blindness. Such is the depravity of the human heart. That the human heart cannot and it will not affirm Jesus' deity nor his lordship. Apart from God's work of revelation to the heart. And that is a triumph of his grace. And I don't know about you folks. But I am very thankful today for the triumphs of God's grace in the human hearts. To be able to pronounce Jesus is Lord. To be willing to come before Jesus and to bow the knee, not out of respect, but to bow the knee out of reverence for who He is, knowing that He is God. Such a triumph of grace. And that's what it is. I'm not so smart to get that. And I'm too proud to fall for it. But the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God reveals who He is. What is ours in Him? And we gladly come and we pronounce Jesus is Lord. So those of us who own Jesus today as our Lord and our Savior, we need to be reminded that we are nothing but debtors to grace. Debtors to grace. Grace of God having triumphed in our heart that we have seen Him for who He is and we've and we fled to Him. We have embraced Him as such. We haven't had to make Him something He is not. It's been revealed to us by the Spirit of God. Jesus is Lord and we affirm that today. But those who persist in denying and those who persist in disowning Jesus as Lord, and if there be any here today, please do not think yourself as so wise or too sophisticated for such an affirmation. You simply walk in, in blindness. And you should pray for God's grace, pray for His mercy to triumph and have your eyes open to see reality. Jesus is Lord. To make that affirmation today. So let me ask. Has God's grace triumphed in your heart? Has God's grace triumphed in your heart? Is the law of God being fully and rightly applied. And able to do that work of conviction and awakening. Alarm. 
do you have an appraisal, a right appreciation for heavenly treasures? You've turned from the treasures of this world, the treasures of this life, those things that were dear to you, those things that you thought were necessary to have. You've exchanged them for the treasures of heaven. Now the treasures of heaven dear to you. And have you affirmed the lordship of Jesus Christ in your heart and in your life? To simply recognize who he is and to grant him that place in your heart. Jesus is Lord. We give thanks for such triumphs of grace in our heart. But we need to be alarmed. We need to be concerned. We need to to be caring for those who have not yet experienced such triumphs. He was a man. He was a man who in most evangelical churches of our day, he would have been at the front of the church welcoming the membership. Asking the right questions. A moral man, a good man, he's not bringing a ton of baggage into the church. But when Jesus confronts him with the law, Jesus confronts him with eternal treasures, Jesus confronts him with his own lordship. He walks away sad. Sad. Because this pursuit of inheriting eternal life is much too costly. So he'll not do it. But that is the human heart. That is the heart of every man, woman, boy, and girl apart from the grace of God. May the grace of God continue to triumph and to build the church of Christ around the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your triumphs in our heart. And certainly it was of you because we were disinterested, unmoved, satisfied in our sin, perhaps looking for something, but not for what you offer. I thank you for the testimony of your triumphs of grace in the hearts of these here today, these that I know as, not only as, as friends, but also as brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet, Lord, we also know the possibility that we be deceived. And if there be any here today that have yet to experience such a triumph, the delivering power of grace in their heart, Lord, would you not today bring them into yourself? We pray in particular for our children, for our young people. Lord, that as these truths are communicated to them through the weakness of of our tongues and our language. But we pray that you would grant them understanding in the heart. And that these triumphs of grace would be evident in the hearts of our children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.